Our Old Testament reading this morning is from Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Listen now for the word of God to the church today. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lofty, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphs were in attendance above him. Each had six wings. With two, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they flew. And one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The pivots on the thresholds shook at the voices of those who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Yet my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphs flew to me, holding a live coal that had been taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. The seraph touched my mouth with it and said, now that this has touched your lips, your guilt has departed and your sin is blotted out. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, here am I. Send me. This is the word of the Lord. I've been battling a uh, bad sore throat for the past couple of days, so bear with my voice and pray that it might um, last for two more sermons. During Lent this year, we are preaching a sermon series based on a book, and you've heard about it um, by Bishop Robert Schnazy, called The Five Practices of Fruitful Congregations. And he suggests in this book that congregations that constantly seek to deepen and to shape their community life around these five practices will experience a growing awareness of the spirit of the living Christ in their midst. And that that awareness and those practices have incredible power to transform both our individual and our corporate journey of faith as followers of Jesus. Paul and Dale have preached already about risk-taking mission and service, and then uh, last week on radical hospitality as two of the five practices. Today, we are considering the church's calling to practice passionate worship as the core or the center of our life together. But you might be thinking, we're Presbyterians. We have our faith roots in Scotland, where passion about anything is not to be discussed, much less displayed. So this discussion about passionate worship might be a challenge for some of us dyed-in-the-wool Presbyterians. But worship always has been and always will be 
at the heart of our life together in the Presbyterian Church USA. Worship and the liturgy of worship is the work of the people. It is critically important who does the work of worship. And your first thought might be that, well, it's the pastors or the worship leaders who are doing the work of worship, the choir. But worship is your personal act of love for God. There's passion in that fact, even for Presbyterians. Worship is your act of love for God. Our Reformed theology states that we are all part of the priesthood of all believers. And so we worship because we are priests. We don't become priests by worshiping. We worship because we are priests. And taking it a step further, we might say that it is not the work that makes the priest holy, but exactly the opposite. It is the priest who makes the work holy. You sanctify the work of worship by the way you listen or sing or greet the people around you. You sanctify the work of worship by your service as an usher or as you prepare the elements for Holy Communion or as you come and stand with those who are receiving them. You make the worship, work of worship holy by singing with a spirit of humility and joy in the choir. You make the work of worship holy, holy work, by acknowledging and opening yourself up to the love of God. No one can do that for you. None of us up here can do that for you. You personally must be present, both physically and spiritually, for worship to matter at all. Dean Chapman, who is the author of How to Worship as a Presbyterian, God bless him for writing that book, but you have to get past the title to even want to pick it up, I admit, but it's actually a good book if you'd like to read it. Chapman suggests that at the core of worship, the core of worship was once understood unconsciously to be a service, service for God, worship as service for God. It was for God's sake that we worship, not for our own. But the last 50 years or so have seen the disappearance of God and the rise of consumerism, which teaches us, again, unconsciously, to expect benefit from worship as worship's first and maybe only reason for being. Now, there's nothing wrong with benefiting from worship. I hope we all do. But the first purpose of worship is to commit direct acts of love for God. Worship is not about you or me. It's about God. Worship is not about what you get out of it. It's about what you put into it. Big difference. The commandment that is above all others, according to Jesus, is the commandment to love God. To love God on God's terms, 
is to participate in and experience passionate worship. I wonder, when you come to church, when you come to worship, do you enter this sanctuary expecting the unexpected? Do you expect to actually encounter the living God here in this time of worship? I wonder what Isaiah expected that day when he walked into the temple. Here was a man who was used to brushing shoulders with the power brokers of his society. He was an insider in the political, social, and religious world of his day. But on this day when he came into the temple, he was stopped in his tracks by the one whose power and glory literally brought him to his knees. For whatever reasons, all of the barriers were removed, and Isaiah was given the ability to see himself and Yahweh with unbelievable clarity. Isaiah's awareness of Yahweh's holiness led him to confess his own unrighteousness and that of his people. I am an unclean man who lives among an unclean people. But it was through that painful self-awareness, that realization of unworthiness, that God was able to truly bless Isaiah that day in the temple. In God's response to Isaiah, there is both unimaginable grace, your guilt has departed, and your sin has been blotted out, and an unavoidable mission. Whom shall I send now? Who will go for us? Isaiah's call that day added a new element to prophetic ministry. The need for the prophet to experience purification themselves before they could do the mission to which they were called. Now cleansed and forgiven, Isaiah responds by saying, Here am I. Send me, Lord. His worship in the temple that day is a total act of passion, of surrendering his whole life out of love to God and for God. This is clearly a much more passionate encounter than most of us have with God, than most of us experience on any given Sunday. Our perceptions of the Lord are usually uh, more on the level of quiet stirrings, not thundering spectacles. And yet, we cannot easily forget the experience of the prophet Isaiah, a man who grasped totally new dimensions of God's power and purity and grace and love that day when he entered to worship in the temple. 
our contemporary challenge is probably not that we grasp too much of God, but that we experience too little of God. In America today, God is often seen as marching in step with our political parties and with our national interests. God is understood to desire our prosperity and to support, in the words of the prayer of Jabez, the enlargement of our territories. God is perceived as a calming presence, a supportive friend and a healing helper, all of which work together to maintain the status quo. And while there is truth to these characterizations, it is not the whole truth. They certainly don't match the experience of Isaiah. With his sensory perceptions racing on overdrive, Isaiah sees a Lord who is holy and high and lofty up on a throne, lifted up. He is far above all political parties of Isaiah's day and much more pure and perfect than any human institution could ever be. The one true God cannot be shoehorned into a particular political agenda or forced to get in line with our own personal interests. In fact, the opposite is true. We need to align our own lives with God. Our purpose in life according to question number one in the Westminster Catechism, is to glorify God. I would say to worship God and enjoy God forever. That is why we gather for worship as the community of God, the body of Christ in this place. We believe in the triune God, a community of persons working together to do the work of creation and redemption and sanctification. And within this community, God shows both almighty power and suffering, suffering love, both grace and truth in Jesus Christ, and offers both inspiration and new life in the person of the Holy Spirit. This view of God also expands our understanding of what it means to be a church community that worships together. If God is a community, united in mutual love and shared purpose, then that is our calling as well. If God's community is creative, then ours should be too. If God's community is full of grace and truth, then these are qualities that we should show. If God's community offers inspiration and liberation and transformation, then we should do no less. When we enter God's presence, we not only experience a community of persons, we also encounter a God of grace. Isaiah's journey in the temple that day mirrors our journey 
to spiritual wholeness. When we begin to see God more clearly, as Isaiah did, we cannot help but see ourselves more clearly. In our cry for deliverance, the God of grace touches our hearts with love and forgiveness, and we are never the same. For Isaiah, that forgiveness freed him to go a new direction and not to return to his former way of life. That is the heart of passionate worship. Worship that reminds us of who and whose we are. Worship that leads us into the transforming presence of the living God and then sends us out to transform the world with the power of that love and grace. Isaiah believed that new life was being given to him so that he could serve the Lord. And so he offered to go in whatever direction God would send him. He became one of the greatest of the prophets, speaking God's wor word to a troubled, corrupt, and sinful society. Friends, as we prepare our hearts and our minds to approach this table of unimaginable grace this morning, I wonder, what difference has God's forgiveness made in your life? What has God forgiven you in order for you to do? This world still needs prophets, courageous souls willing to deliver the message, thus says the Lord, to a society that is quick, too quick to blot out divine words. But the world also needs teachers and counselors, preachers and evangelists, healers and helpers, as well as people of vision and energy and integrity in every line of work that is being performed in this world today. Worship reminds us of our purpose in life. Worship brings us into alignment with the God who has given us a vision and calling to change the world with our talents and our gifts and our relationships as followers of Jesus. When you have a vision of God, a vision from God, even though it may not be as dramatic as Isaiah's vision. You cannot not do something. Painters with a vision paint, composers compose, writers write, Christians go and tell, and they show and tell because that's what we have been forgiven to do.
what's at stake in worship? Pastor and author Mark Laberton says the answer to that question is everything. Everything is at stake in worship, especially when worship turns out to be the dangerous act of waking up to God and to the purpose of God in this world and then living lives that show it. May God make it so in our own lives and in the life and ministry of our church. Amen. Holy, holy, holy God, touch us with the power of your presence and your forgiveness. Free us. Heal us. Fill us with joy and peace and courage so that we might be able to say, along with Isaiah, here I am. Send me. Amen. I invite you now to remain seated and join in on our hymn to prepare our hearts for communion, hymn number 525, Here I Am, Lord, stanzas one and three.
As we prepare to draw near to the communion table, let us pray together. Lord, as we come to this table that reminds us of the breadth and depth of your love for us and of the power of your calling to us, we pray that you would take these very common elements of bread and juice and set them aside to a sacred purpose. And as we, very common people, come to this communion table, remind us again of the sacred purpose of your love in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 